Well, let me invite you to take out your Bibles and to turn them open to Mark chapter 7, to that passage our friend Cameron read for us a few moments ago, Mark chapter 7. If you do not have a Bible, know there's one providing the pew in front of you to use. If you do not own a Bible, know that we have some on the table in the foyer. We'd love for you to grab one of those on your way out. Let us gift you with your own copy of the scriptures, Mark chapter 7. Now, the one athletic contest out of all the athletic contests that happen in our country uh, that I look forward to the most every year is the NBA Finals. I love the NBA Finals. I follow the NBA fairly closely or probably too close, and I watch a lot of NBA basketball. I'm always looking forward to the finals, and and this year was no different, but the finals were extraordinary. And they were extraordinary because you had two teams. You had the Cleveland Cavaliers who hadn't, I don't think, had won an NBA championship prior to this season. If, if they have, it was so long ago, nobody can remember. So much so that people saw, thought the city of Cleveland was cursed because of their, uh, in a, their, their, their drought with championships. But they had a player on that team named LeBron James. And he dominated the finals. He did things no player has ever, or no player has ever done on that stage before. They, they of course, played against the Golden State Warriors, who were highly favored. They were the team I was rooting for, highly favored to win the finals. But because of James's Herculean efforts, they, the Cavaliers beat uh, the Warriors in seven games. And over the course of that series, LeBron James did everything well. I mean, he did something that no other player on that stage had ever done. Prior to this season, that is, he actually led in every statistical, every statistical category that mattered. LeBron James led for every player on the floor, Cleveland Cavaliers or the Golden State Warriors. I mean, he led in points. He led in assists, steals, rebounds, blocks. LeBron James led every single statistical category, doing every single thing well. It's no wonder people refer to him as King James, right? I mean, he was dominant. Well, you take into consideration the performance LeBron James had in that moment, and you just kind of hold that into your mind as you slide into the Gospel of Mark. And as you've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, Mark has been presenting to us the the person of Jesus, highlighting the ministry of Jesus. And as we've been observing him since the beginning of January, walking through this gospel. We've seen Jesus do everything well. He's doing everything well. He's doing everything well, and he's doing it in such a way that is leaving everyone astonished. Jesus doing everything well, doing things that have never been done before. This is a guy who's been teaching and preaching with so much power and authority that's been left people spellbound and their hearts gripped by what Jesus was teaching them about the nature of God and what his kingdom is all about. We've seen Jesus heal people of diseases that, the va- that everyone considered to be hopeless or uncurable. We've seen Jesus cast out demons in ways that show his authority and his power, leaving people uh, astounded by his By his work on that front, we've seen Jesus calm storms by speaking a word. We've seen Jesus walk on water. We've seen Jesus do everything well. It's no wonder why Mark portrays him as king. It's no wonder that you and I worship and serve him as King Jesus because he is the one who does everything well. And the work he is doing in your life right now is a work, I assure you, he will do well. 
So when you get into this passage in Mark chapter 7 and you step into verse 37, you see a phrase there that is an appropriate description of the ministry of Jesus. This crowd that has seen Jesus uh, perform a miracle to bring healing to this deaf, mute guy's life, it, they summarize his ministry by saying he has done all things well. It's an appropriate description, and we want to hold that phrase in our mind tonight as we're walking through this passage. Jesus doing everything well. And you jump back up to verse 31, and you see a kind of a transition from last week's passage in the sense that Jesus changes locations. It says in verse 31 that when that Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So he's moved away from where he was serving last week, where, we, where he met the Syrophoenician woman and he showed her the surplus nature of God's grace. And now he's moving from there to the Decapolis. Now, to understand that this is, pretty, this is kind of a strange move, but it shows us more about the heart of Jesus and the ministry he was engaged in. Uh, I brought a map just so you can have a visualization of where Jesus is traveling, where he's hanging, and where he's serving. I took my family camping last week. Maybe that's my inspiration. I'm into maps right now. So here's a map let you see where Jesus has been serving. Now, when you think about the first century world, the world that Jesus lived in, served in, the, the, the nation of Israel was basically divided into two sections. You had northern Israel and southern Israel. Northern Israel was more of a rural area. It was more of the, the it, was, it was a, a poorer area. area. It, was a, it was life in northern Israel revolved around the Sea of Galilee, which is that big bottle, body of water right in the middle. Now, when you move into south southern Israel, into a place called Judea, that's where you find Jerusalem. That's where you find the temple, which is the the centerpiece of Jewish life and worship, everything centered on the temple for the people of Israel. So you have this region, this northern Israel and southern Israel passing on through Samaria. You get to Jerusalem and Judea down there off the screen. And this was it, Jewish territory. But as we said last week, Jesus left Galilee. He left that region. He left northern Israel, and he went up to Tyre, which is in the top left hand of, of the landmass there. You see it in northwest of Galilee. And there he served. And we said that Tyre was unique because it was a non-Jewish territory. And so the common Israelite person would have viewed that region as being unclean. And that region was inhabited by unclean people. But it also says that Jesus hung out in Sidon. Sidon is at the very top of the screen. It, you just move up there. And he just kind of served and operated and vacated in that region for a while. But here in the very next passage, Mark portrays Jesus as going all the way to the region of Decapolis. Now, it's a long walk from Tyre and Sidon to Decapolis. Back in this day, they did not have cars and Amtraks. They did not have uh, Uber and all those things. What they had were their feet, and they had donkeys. So when Jesus and his disciples are traveling through the region, they're walking, or at least, in the very least, they're riding a donkey or something along those lines. So this was a very long trip for Jesus to go up into that region and serve and then to move back down into the area called the Decapolis, which is southeast of Galilee. Now, the word Decapolis refers to ten cities because that region was comprised of ten cities. And these were ten cities that fell outside of Herod's ju jurisdiction, which was in Galilee. In other words, Decapolis was another Gentile region. It was a region that was full of inhabitants who were predominantly non-Jewish. And that is very significant, especially when you consider how long it took for Jesus and his disciples to travel and to move from one region to the next. 
Now, if you take into consideration the distance, if you take into rate the, you know, the pace and the walking and all those types of things, many scholars believe that Jesus spent, during this trip, going to Tyre and Sidon and coming on down to the Decapolis, he probably spent at least eight months. And that's a conservative, conservative estimate. Some say he may have spent up to a year and a half serving in these non-Jewish regions. The significance of that for us tonight is found in this thought. The Gospels that we're reading, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, the Gospels record roughly three years of Jesus' public ministry. So all that you read about in the Gospels from the beginning of Mark to the end of Mark or uh, the beginning of Luke to the end of Luke, it, it spans about three years of ministry. So if Jesus spent this much time serving in non-Jewish territory, do you realize this means Jesus spent almost a third of his time ministering in what was considered to be an unclean area, loving unclean people? He spent a third of his ministry engaging people who, and engaging regions and territories that were not predominantly Jewish. Now, admittedly, we don't know all the details of what he did when he navigated these areas. We just have a couple of stories found here in Mark chapter 7. But we are given a summary in Matthew chapter 15 that I want to put before you because it's very instructive. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 30 and 31, Matthew gives us a description of the types of things Jesus was doing over the course of this time. It says in that passage that great crowds came to Jesus, and they were bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered, when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, get this, they glorified the God of Israel. So all of these non-Jewish people, when they met Jesus and they experienced his work in their lives, they came to glorify, to worship, and to know the God of Israel. You talk about crossing cultures. Jesus crossed cultures to engage these Gentile regions, these non-Jewish people, and he delivered them a message that was rooted in Israel, that was rooted in the Old Testament. And then as people responded to what Jesus was doing, they had to cross their culture, so to speak, and worship the God of Israel in response to the grace and the power they were experiencing in Jesus. So what this does for us is it spans our, it broadens our horizon and our perspective on what God desires for the world and the cultures that we live in. When we say that Jesus does all things well, we mean that Jesus does all things well for all types of people. All types of people. Jesus does all things well for all types of people. And I cannot overstate that dynamic. Another aspect of the Gospel of Mark that we got to keep in mind is that Mark is writing this gospel most likely from Rome. That was a Gentile territory, a non-Jewish region. And he's writing to the first generation of Christians in the church that were predominantly non-Jewish, that were Gentile. And so when Mark highlights these dynamics about Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 7, he's reminding us, he's writing to assure those who came to faith in the Jewish Messiah from a Gentile context that they were not secondary citizens in the kingdom of God. 
He wrote this gospel to assure people like you and I that we have full acceptance in the kingdom of God through our faith in Jesus. This means that whatever external distinctions that we have about ourselves, whatever sets us apart from one another, our culture, our skin color, our gender, our socioeconomic status, this means that when we come to faith in Jesus, we find ourselves standing shoulder to shoulder with complete and full access to God. We discover that because of Jesus, external distinctions do not determine eternal value. And that should blow our perspective up on how we view other human beings and how we relate to one another in the church. External distinctions do not determine eternal value. Jesus does. And the life and the ministry that Jesus executed and accomplished, he did for all types of people. He did for Jews and Gentiles. He did for Americans and Asians. He did for every type of person on the planet. Jesus' ministry can and will benefit in some way, shape, or form. This is who Jesus is. He does all things well for all types of people. Eternal distinctions do not determine eternal value. And the events in Mark chapter 7 prefigure that gospel reality. It's all hinting and driving towards that conclusion. We know this because ultimately in a capitalistic society that value is determined by the price someone is willing to pay for something. This is how our economy works. Value is determined by what a person is willing to pay. And you just kind of take that and you transfer it over to the price Jesus was willing to pay for you. And you realize that he paid it for you regardless of your race, regardless of your gender, regardless of your cultural distinctions. It should swell your heart with joy. It should swell your heart with affections. The price Jesus was willing to pay for your redemption, for your ransom. This is why Mark would say in chapter 10, verse 45, that the Son of Man came to give his life as what? As a ransom, as a payment for many, for many types of people. He paid the ultimate price so that we might be brought into the presence of God. And so we want to understand this because this dynamic speaks to how God values us. And if this is how God values us, ultimately this is how we should value one another. That our external distinctions, what makes us different from each other, do not determine our value in the church. Our race, our gender, whatever the case may be. The only thing that determines our value is the ransom that Jesus paid. Now, you consider that, and then you also consider another aspect to Mark's gospel. We'll, we'll, go, we'll get into the story in a minute, but there's just a lot here. And if you consider how the people of Israel, how their life and their worship revolved around the temple, and as these Gentile peoples are coming to glorify the God of Israel, chances are at some point they would have journeyed to Jerusalem, they would have walked to the temple, and they would have uh, began to worship the God of Israel at the temple in Jerusalem, and so, maybe for one of the festivals or one of, one of the annual celebrations that they would host. And, but the interesting thing about the temple is that when a person arrived, let's say a person from Tyre, Sidon, from one of the Decapolis cities, if they showed up in Jerusalem and they come to approach God in worship, and they get to the temple, what they're going to find in the temple is distinction. What they're going to find in the temple is division. Because the way the temple was laid out, it highlighted and emphasized the distinctions amongst the peoples. So there was a court for Gentiles. 
there was an area on the outskirts of the temple where a Gentile, a non-Jewish man or a non-Jewish woman could come and they could go into, but they could go no further. So there was distance between them and what was called the Holy of Holies or where the most intense manifestation of the presence of God was believed to dwell. There was distance there. But not only distance between Gentiles in the presence of God, there were other people in between them who could get closer to this God. So they would move through the court of the Gentiles, and then you would step into another court called the court of women or the court of, children, the court of women and children. This is where Jewish women and Jewish children could come, and they could worship God, and they could get that close, but they could not get closer. And then you go one step further into the temple, and you get into the place where the Jewish men could come, and where they could worship, and where they could congregate. But then you go one step further, and you get closer to the Holy of Holies, and, and where the priests could hang, where the priests could worship, where the priests could, could do their thing. And then you get to the Holy of Holies that was separated from all the priests by a veil, a huge veil, and only once a year could the great high priest enter that place. So when a Gentile person who's now worshiping the God of Israel shows up at the temple to do just that because his heart's been changing, they've met this Jesus, they want to know the God that Jesus, the, the God that sent Jesus, they show up and they have all these barriers, all these, all these uh, buffers between them and the innermost presence of God, but then you take that into consideration when you step up into the Gospel of Mark. And you get to the end of the story, and you have this moment when Jesus goes to the cross, and he dies on the cross as a substitute for our sins, as a sacrifice of atonement. We are told in that moment that the veil tore from top to bottom. The veil that separated the Holy of Holies from all the other sections of the temple, it ripped from top to bottom. It was a supernatural, miraculous moment saying God accepted the death of Jesus on behalf of all types of people. So the veil was torn. And at that same moment, in Mark chapter 15, the first person to profess publicly that Jesus is the Son of God was a Gentile, a centurion an outsider, someone who could only hang out on the rim of the presence of God. Now he's at the feet of Jesus and he's seeing this go down and saying, this surely, this is the son of God. And you have this Gentile, this non-Jewish, unclean Roman soldier professing this reality and he's as close to God as you could get on the face of the earth as he was standing there at the cross of Jesus. You have this picture. And so we get this dynamic that External distinctions, because of Jesus' death on the cross, we realize that external distinctions do not determine eternal value. That when Jesus died, he died in such a way that destroyed every barrier we place between ourselves and God and every barrier we place between each other. This is why Paul would say what he does in that popular verse, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. This is why he says this. Galatians 3... 328, he says, there is now, because of the gospel, there is now neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Each and every person who's trusting in Jesus has full acceptance by the holy God of the universe. And we can press in as close to God as our hearts desire and my prayer is that your heart would desire to draw as close as you possibly can to the God who created you and the God who died ultimately 
to save you and to redeem you. Because of the gospel, we find that there are no class distinctions in the kingdom of God. That we all share the same space, access to the same God through the door that is, that is Jesus. And you know what this means, don't you? This means that God's kingdom becomes the most inclusive place on the planet. The kingdom of God is inclusive because it means any type of person can come to God through Jesus. God's kingdom is inclusive, but at the same time, this also means that God's kingdom is exclusive. The kingdom of God is unique because it is the most inclusive, and in a sense, it is the most exclusive place and community in the world. It's inclusive because it means any type of person can come to know this God. Any type of person can benefit from the grace of God flowing from the gospel. But at the same time, it is exclusive because it says the only people who will benefit and the only people who will draw near to this God are those who put their faith in Jesus. So the kingdom of God is both inclusive and exclusive. And we hold that tension in our church, recognizing that, yes, any type of person, regardless of their external distinctions, are welcome in our community. They are welcome and desired by the God of the universe. But we also recognize that those who benefit in relationship with this God, they must come through the door that is Jesus, trusting in his death, his resurrection, now, I know that that hits some of us the wrong way. It's probably just using words like inclusive and exclusive. I know that can kind of unsettle us sometimes because they're trigger words in our culture. They're trigger words perhaps in your heart and in your mind. And I think one of the reasons why our hearts bristle at that dynamic is because, in part, we underappreciate the uniqueness of Jesus. When we have a problem with both the inclusive and exclusive nature of the kingdom of God, it's usually because we are underappreciating some aspect of the uniqueness of Jesus. This is why I think Mark puts, well, all that he's writing in this gospel, he's showcasing the uniqueness of Jesus in a myriad of ways. And so you, you see him just kind of putting out Jesus' uniqueness down in verse 32, where we get into the heart of the study tonight, where it says in verse 32, it says, and they, these people, then brought to Jesus a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on them. And what this means is you get this picture of Jesus serving in these regions, doing, uh, doing all things well for all types of people. But then Mark laser focuses in on this one specific person. So on one hand, yes, Jesus does all things well for all types of people. At the same time, he does all things well for each individual person. That this Jesus who loves and serves the masses, who loves and serves the world, this Jesus zeroes in on people who would benefit most intimately from his ministry and ultimately his death and his resurrection. So he does all things well for each individual person. And so in verse 32, he meets this individual. And this individual is described as being deaf and having a speech impediment. Your Bible may say he was mute. This means that everyone in his life, for the most part, viewed him as a problem. His whole life, he grew up, and as people looked at him, they saw him as an inconvenience. They saw him as a problem that needed to be dismissed or overlooked or ran past. But for one reason or another, there was a group in his life. Maybe they were family. Maybe they were friends. Whatever the case may be, they wanted to bring this guy to Jesus, believing that Jesus could do something unique in his life. And so when Jesus, when he, when he gets to Jesus, you have this deaf man with a speech impediment who, whom everyone viewed as a problem. 
But when Jesus sees him, he doesn't see this guy as a problem. He sees him as a person. He sees a person, not a problem, when he meets this guy. And that is contrasted with how the other religious leaders viewed this deaf, mute guy. The people of Israel viewed this guy who most likely, either he was born deaf or maybe he had an infectious disease by the age of two or three and he went deaf. And as a result of his deafness, he developed a speech impediment. It's not uncommon for a deaf person to have a problem speaking. The reason for that is because it's hard to form words if you never hear words. And so that's kind of this situation, and there was no remedies for this guy. There was no, no speech therapy that he could undergo. There were no hearing aids, no technology that could have benefited his situation. And so the people of Israel viewed him as a problem, as an inconvenience, many of whom viewed him as unclean. Maybe his deafness and his muteness was considered to be a curse. Uh, maybe he had been disobedient or sinful on some fronts, and maybe God made him this way as a type of curse. And the rabbis, the other Jewish leaders, would view this guy, and they would say, well, we have no way of knowing what he understands or what he's comprehending, so they would put him in the classification as being insane, crazy guy. And a lot of times we read about Israel's perspective on people who are sick or people who have these types of situations. Sometimes we want to beat up on Israel, but I assure you the Gentile world was just as bad as Israel when it came to relating to those who were like this. The Gentile worlds, depending on what types of gods they worshipped or what types of gods they imagined imagined themselves serving, they would treat these guys uh, even in more intense way. They would, well, I was reading, as I was prepping for this, I was reading about how Native Americans in the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, non-Jewish cultures, Native Americans, when there was a deaf-mute person in their tribe, they viewed them as a type of monster, and usually they would publicly execute that person to get rid of the monster, to to kill the monster. So it's not, Israel wasn't unique in their poor treatment of people in need. Every culture on the planet has treated people in need poorly. It's indicative of the fallen human condition. But again, what's spotlighted here is the uniqueness of Jesus because when Jesus sees this guy, he sees a person, not a problem, and he begins to do something in his life that shows he, he loves this guy specifically, not generically. He loves this person specifically, not generically. You see this in verse 33, where it says, Jesus then took him aside from the crowd privately. He put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, this word that Cameron speaks Aramaic, so he pronounced, right? He says, that is, be opened. And so he ministers to this guy. He loves this guy specifically, not generically. And that's very significant for us, because Well, I'll get there in a minute, but we want to consider, look at his specific love. Look at the unique way in which he loved this guy. This was a man who's never heard a word his whole life. This was a man who could not speak, could not communicate, could not interact with other people. He's brought to Jesus in a crowd, and then Jesus sees him in his need and says, I'm going to love you the best way possible. I'm going to do all things well in your life. So he takes this man away from the crowd. There's so much love in that, it's crazy. He pulls this guy away from the crowd, and so when he heals him, he doesn't hear a noisy crowd, which could have intimidated him, could have rocked him, could have unsettled him and scared him. The first voice this guy hears is the voice of God. This is love. This is private interaction between Jesus and this man. Jesus knows when it is best to love when a person is better loved in privacy rather than in public. Now, you hold that in your mind. I know some of you were with us last week, and there are times when we're gathering together, we gather together like this, and occasionally, given the nature of our neighborhood and other things that go on, sometimes people walk in, 
and they interrupt the teaching or they'll come to the front and they'll say things, they'll try to get my attention and sometimes I'll interact or dialogue with them like this, but the vast majority of times what we do is we believe that the, the, in most cases, people who may interrupt the service publicly would be better loved in private rather than in public. And so what we do in those instances, just so you're aware, is we invite that person, Pastor Wes usually, or somebody on our security team, they'll come and they'll talk to the person, they'll try to get the person's attention, and then they'll invite that person into some space where they can sit down, talk face-to-face, and interact with one another in an interpersonal kind of way. And we believe that in the vast majority of, the majority of those instances, that person is better loved in that setting than he would if we just tried to deal with whatever was going on together in this space like that. And so most cases, when you see Pastor Wes or somebody come and, and get somebody's attention who may be interrupting the gathering, that's what we're trying to do. We're not kicking anybody out of the service. We're not exiling anyone from our community. We're pulling them into a setting where we believe that person will be most loved. We don't want that person to become a spectacle. That person is not an object of our entertainment. And so we pull that person into a setting where they can be heard, a setting where they can be talked with. And so that's what we do. And here you have an instance where Jesus, some people brought this guy in a public setting, and Jesus believes he'd be better served in private. So he pulls him aside and he talks to him there. But then look what else he does. He says, not only does he pull him aside and they go print a private, he then performing some sign language. He starts communicating with this guy in a way that he can understand. And he starts by putting his fingers in his ears. Now Jesus is not giving him a wet willy. Right? He's, he's not giving him a wet I taught my daughter about wet willies about a week ago. And I said, Delaney, I want to give you a wet willy. And she got excited. And I said, well, uh, she said, okay, well, what's a wet willy? I said, well, a wet willy is the type of thing that you get when you're not expecting it. And so I'm going to give you a wet willy, but if you're expecting it, I can't give it to you. And so all day long, Dad, give me a wet willy. Give me a wet willy. No, Delaney, you can't, you, can't, you can't have one right now. It's when you don't expect it. That's when I'll give it to you. And then later that night, she's getting ready for bed, and boom, I got her a wet willy. She didn't like it, but boom. But this, in this moment, when Jesus touches this man's ears, he's not giving him a wet willy. He's getting his attention. He's saying, look, I'm, gonna, I'm about to heal this in you. I'm about to remedy this. And so he touches his ears. But not only does he touch his ears in this personal kind of way, he then spits and touches his tongue. Now, I know that sounds strange, but it wasn't uncommon for remedies in the first century world to involve some type of spit to kind of bind some kind of balm together. Only in this instance, Jesus doesn't mix his spit with anything. He just spits on his, on his hands and then touches the man's tongue and indicating that I'm going to heal this too. I'm about to be your remedy. Like, I know you've seen with your eyes other people being served by doctors, and, and they've perhaps done this type of thing. I don't want you to be scared. I don't want you to be intimidated. So I'm going to do some gestures that you're familiar with because I love you. And so he touches his tongue, saying, I'm going I'm to heal this in you. And then look what he does. He then looks up into heaven. He touches his ears, he touches his tongue, and then he looks up to heaven, indicating to this man sign language that your healing is about to come from heaven. The God you think has cursed you because you're blind and mute, the God of heaven is about to heal you. Power is coming from God to redeem you, to restore you. I know you feel cursed. I know you feel like an outcast. But I assure you, God is focusing on you, and he's about to do something now to change your life. And then you have this moment where Jesus 
takes a deep breath and he sighs, giving this visible display to this guy who can only see that Jesus is bothered by his situation. He views his situation, yes, it is problematic, but he knows that this is a person. And, and elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as the great physician. He's referred to as that often because of the miracles he performed. And I have many friends in my life who are doctors, and, and different doctors become doctors for different reasons. Some become a doctor because they're motivated like house on TV. They just like solving problems. And so they're fascinated by a problem that they can go in and fix. It's not that they love people. It's just they love problem solving. Well, Jesus here isn't that type of doctor. He, he, he doesn't just love solving problems. He's bothered by the fallen human condition. He's bothered by that which plagues people in this world. And so he sighs. He wants to eradicate this, not only in this man's life, but ultimately all throughout the world. He wants to bring a full healing and a full restor, restoration to all that he has created and to all that he declared good. And so he loves this person. He sighs as a way of saying this, and then he speaks a word. He speaks in what is believed to be Aramaic, that word that, that's recorded there that's hard to pronounce, but then Mark translates it for us. That is, what Jesus said was to be opened. Be opened. And then look at verse 35. It says, then his ears were opened. His tongue was released. The chains that kind of held his tongue down were broken. They were released in that moment. And then it says that he spoke plainly. This was immediate and complete healing. He did not have to go to speech therapy and improve upon what Jesus has just done. Jesus does all things well, and when he healed this guy, he did it completely. He did it instantly. It's a powerful, powerful miracle. And you can imagine how loved this guy felt. Not because Jesus loved him generically, but because he loved him specifically. He dealt with him in the situation that this man was in. And truth be told, Jesus has done the same thing in the life of every one of his disciples. And I'm wondering if one of the reasons why your heart doesn't flutter when Jesus' name is mentioned. I wonder if it's part of the reason why your heart doesn't warm when the gospel is talked about, I wonder if it's not because your relationship with God is too generic. I worry that our relationship with God is too generic. We just talk about God in generic terms. And if we have a generic God who does generic things, the, the meaning of his activity in our lives will be missed. And the affections we should have and hold towards God will be absent Yes, it's a generic thing to say God loves the world. That's great, but it is generic. Tell me how. If you believe that God loves the world, how does he love the world? Get specific. And this is where you would get into the gospel. And you're told in the New Testament, God loved the world. He demonstrated his love in this. While you and I were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. How do you know that God loves the world? Christ's death. So we don't want to just talk about a generic love that God has for the world. We want to talk about a specific love that God has demonstrated through the cross of his son. And then when you and I interact with that death and we think about the crucifixion, we don't want to just talk about the effect it has on our lives generically. We want to get specific meaning. We want to name specific sins that God has forgiven us of. Yes, God forgives your sin, but what specific sins have you been forgiven of? If you never give thought to that, your life will be, your relationship with God will be so generic, it won't mean anything. And you wonder why your worship is so dull or your worship is so cold. Well, it could be because you're too generic in your relationship with God. 
And so you want to ask yourself a series of questions. What specific sins has God forgiven you? Your arrogance? Your self-centeredness? Your laziness? Your lack of compassion? Your callousness? Your greed? Your lust? What specific sins has God forgiven you? Think about that. Don't be afraid to name your sins as a Christian. We don't have to be afraid to name our sins because the grace of God that flows through the death of Jesus on the cross is sufficient for all of our sins, even the ones you consider to be worse than others. So we want to get specific. But not only that, we, want to, we could ask ourselves, what specific ailments has God alleviated for you? How has God healed your life? Maybe he's done something supernatural to bring healing to your body or to bring healing to your mind or to bring healing to your emotions. Or maybe God has used the channels of common grace and he's used medicine and he's used doctors to bring healing to your life. Even in that instance, you can express gratitude to God. You can be specific about God bringing healing from any ailment, whether it comes through common grace channels like medicine and technology or if it comes through a supernatural intervention such as what we see here. Or maybe you're in a situation where you've been suffering and struggling and you've asked God for healing and help, but he hasn't. Then you could ask yourself, what specific sufferings is God sustaining you through right now? You see, the reality is not every person experiences healing in this life. This is why many, everybody dies at some point. We die. Our bodies break down. And sometimes our suffering prior to death may last for a while. But it's still, even then, you and I can get specific in our relationship with God and we can see how God's grace is proving to be sufficient for us and specifically at work in our lives to sustain us through whatever it is we may be going through. This is why Beethoven, who was deaf, lived his whole life deaf. He was never healed. And then it is said at some point, whether it was on his deathbed or just before dying, Beethoven would say, well, in heaven I will hear. In heaven I will hear. Or you can ask yourself another question. What specific provisions has God made for you? How has he provided for you and for your family? How is God meeting your needs? How is God providing for you? Get specific. There's a reason why the old hymnist wrote the song, Count Your Many Blessings, Name Them One by One. Get specific. Specificity intensifies intimacy. But if you're too generic, you will not feel much intimacy with your God and with your Savior. We want to get specific in our relationship with God. So he's loving this guy specifically. He brings healing supernaturally, doing all things well. But then look at Jesus' response in verse 36, and we'll move fairly fast through this part. Verse 36, Jesus says something strange. Now, this is the first time this guy's been able to speak. He finally has words coming out of his mouth, and Jesus tells him to be quiet. He wants to tell everyone, right? We want to champion. Yes, go tell everyone. Jesus says, no, don't tell anyone. Now, of course, they were disobedient. The more he charged them not to speak, the more zealously they proclaimed it. It's a strange irony that when Jesus tells us to be quiet, we speak. When he tells us to speak, we're often quiet. Strange twisting of the human heart. But here you've got this instance where Jesus is encouraging everyone to be silent. And this isn't the first time in Mark's gospel when he's done that. As you've been studying along, I'm sure you've had the question, why does Jesus keep telling people to be quiet and not to tell others about the miracles he's performing? You see this in Mark chapter 1, verse 34. You see it in Mark chapter 1, verse 44. You see it in Mark chapter 3, verse 12. Jesus telling people to be quiet, to not to tell anyone about what he's doing. Now, there is one instance prior to this in Mark chapter 5 when Jesus is in the Decapolis. He's in the region that he's in now. 
And he delivers what's called, referred to as the demoniac. He delivers him from demons. And he tells that guy, now go throughout the Decapolis and tell everyone about what I've just done for you. But now, then Jesus returns to Galilee, continues his ministry. But now that he's come back to Decapolis, he tells everyone that he performs a miracle and says, now be quiet about it. Don't speak. Now, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. One of which, I think Jesus wanted this demoniac to prime the pump for his arrival. To get people ready to uh, hear more about Jesus. Jesus knew he was going to return to the Decapolis. So there's a part in which they were priming the pump. So that now when he returned, many people are coming to him and many people are seeking. They know what types of things Jesus can do. But now that he's doing it and he's got everybody's attention, he's saying, now be quiet. Now the reason why I think Jesus is cautioning silence in this moment. The reason being is because his message is not yet complete. The reason he's cautioning silence is because he knows that the people haven't seen anything yet. He knows that he's about to do something far more substantial than what he's just done in this moment. He knows that he's got greater things in store, not only for this guy, but for everyone who would come to him and trust in him. The message is not complete, so he's saying, don't speak yet. This guy in Mark 7 is just a small piece of a much bigger puzzle. And when Jesus operates, he operates with everything in mind. He's operating with the big picture in mind. And he views this guy as just a small piece of a much bigger story that Jesus is telling. He's saying, don't speak yet because you haven't seen or heard everything yet. I've got greater things in store. And I'll show you what that is. When you look at Mark 30, when you look at verse 32. Mark uses a word in describing this man that is unique. It's the only time this word shows up in the New Testament. It's the word is speech impediment, or can be translated mute. The word Mark used there is a Greek term that shows up nowhere else in the New Testament and actually only shows up one other time in the whole Bible. And I believe Mark is being intentional in choosing that word because he wants you and I to read this story in light of Isaiah chapter 35. This is a cross-reference for Mark. He's saying, as you hear this word and it echoes in your brain, think back to Isaiah 5, cross-reference to that passage. So you hold this moment and turn back with me to Isaiah 35. I want to show you what this chapter is about. It's, it's fascinating. In the previous chapter, God is talking about how one day he's going to judge all types of people in the world. All the nations will be judged. But then in Isaiah 35, he starts talking about those who would benefit from the Messiah's ministry. And he talks about it in a way that it's not just the people, but it's the whole creation that he's going to restore. And you get this picture of how Jesus, yes, he does all things well. And part of what he does well is by recreating the world. And so when Jesus cautions silence in Mark 7, he's saying you haven't heard or seen anything yet. I'm going to do more that will blow your minds. And you get into Isaiah chapter 35, and you look at verses 5 and 6. We'll start in verse 4. It says this, Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man leap, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the, here's the word, mute. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy. 
The tongue of the mute will sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Everything's changing. There's coming a point where Jesus does all things well by recreating the world, by making all things new. You keep reading and you see these metaphors. Verse 7, the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. Get this. The unclean shall not pass over it. And the reason for that is because anyone who does, Jesus would have cleansed. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools. They shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk on it. And then here's the word, verse 10, and the ransomed. Remember the key word in Mark? The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing. Remember Jesus sighing in this text? Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. There's coming a day when Jesus does all things well by making all things new, by recreating the world. But all of this activity is contingent upon not Jesus' miracles in the gospel. All of this recreating work is contingent upon Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. That is how God will make all things new. It's how he will recreate the world. So when Jesus says, don't tell anyone in Mark 7, it's because they don't have the full story. It is insufficient to tell people that Jesus performs miracles. What we tell people is that Jesus died for them and that he rose from the grave to recreate them and the world that they live in. That's the message that we deliver. This is why at the end of the gospel, after cautioning silence time and time and time again, you come to the end of the gospel. What does Jesus say? He says, now go tell everyone. Now you have all the pieces to the story that you need. Now you can tell people specifically of how Jesus does all things well for all types of people because you're going to take this message to the nations. Now you have the whole story to show people how God's specific love can flow to their lives, forgiving them of specific sins, doing life change in specific, tangible ways. Now you have the message of hope that one day there's coming a world where God makes all things new, which is what's being described in Isaiah 35. One day Jesus will make all things new. And I would remind you of how he's come to do this. If you step back into Isaiah 35, all of this is contingent, as I said, upon the death of Jesus. And you're wondering, well, how do I know that? Well, you look at verse 4. Verse 4 of Isaiah 35, when he says, say to, the, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, will come with the recompense, re, recompense of God or with the judgment of God. He will come and save you. And then you step into the gospel and God himself has come into the world and with him has come the recompense or the judgment of God. You're wondering, well, where is it? I don't see Jesus crushing people. I don't see him wielding power. Well, the reason is the way Jesus in his first coming, the way he comes with the recompense of God is that he's come not ultimately to bring judgment in the gospel. He comes to bear it. He comes to take God's divine 
recompense, his divine judgment. He's going to take it upon himself when he goes to the cross. This is how God will make all things new. Because when Jesus died as a ransom for many, the price he paid, his death on the cross, was sufficient not only for me, but for all of his creation. That his death will lead to the recreation of all things because Jesus came not to bring divine retribution in the gospel. He came to bear it. And so when he died on the cross and he rose from the grave, he paved the way for you and I to step into the future with confidence, to step into the future with hope of knowing Knowing that the description of this new heavens and this new earth in Isaiah 35, that is going to become a reality. And we become the most hopeful, realist people in the world. Jesus does all things well. And whatever he's doing in you right now, I assure you, he's going to do it well. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would take this picture and that you would inflame the affections of our hearts with it. I pray that we would be moved by what Jesus has done for us, what Jesus is now doing in us, and what Jesus promises to do in the future. I pray that our hearts would swell with joy and gladness and satisfaction as we consider how you, Jesus, you, Jesus, do all things well. We love you and we trust that you love us Because of the life you live, the death you died, and your resurrection from the grave, we pray this in your name. Amen.